1: I feel like when Gwyneth Paltrow and the Coldplay dude consciously uncoupled. But for me, it was me and my appendix.
2: Do you feel lighter?
0: (laughs) That's what I was going to say. It's like you've gone on a very aggressive weight loss campaign. (laughs) Well,
3: Yeah, I actually want to know how much did you have a pre and post weighing so we can know how much your appendix weighed? I am very
1: disappointed that they did not let me look at it. They didn't let me take it home in like a mason jar with formaldehyde. They just, they just yanked it out. And then, you know, it's like, I don't even own it anymore. But the good news, I mean, there's lots of good news, man. I got to say laparoscopic surgery is a medical miracle. I mean, I don't recommend it like recreationally, but you need to have your appendix. removed, Maybe, maybe once for the experience. I mean, compared to
2: dying of appendicitis, it's a (laughs) walk in the park.
1: So much, so much better. But, but fortunately now, uh, I have a, like a titanium staple in me forever. And according to the nurse, I can now, I can mean, officially call myself a bionic man. So this was, this was a, you know, it was a great experience overall. Do you have to worry about setting off like airport alarms now? Like does TSA pre-check an absolute necessity for you? You know, I, I don't, but it is funny how many people, like, like how many nurses, anesthetists and surgeons were all like, no, don't worry.
3: <laughs> you will not,
1: you will not light up the metal detector.
3: I think though you should like now make a point of carrying inappropriate objects onto airplanes. And whenever you get, you beep, you're like, no, nah, it's just the staple, <laughs> my appendix, the titanium staple.
0: I am. the. It's not my man. jar with my little appendix in it that I'm carrying
1: with me for no good reason. It is amazing how such a small, small organ can cause such monumental problems. <laughs>
2: It's a, it's an argument against intelligent design. You might say. <laughs> oh my god!
0: Uh, yeah, kind of against evolution too, though, because don't you, you think we would have lost those things a while ago? No,
2: man, because it's not, it's not causing harm. Alan's already reproduced; his genes are <laughs> safe. <Causing
0: harm. laughs> yeah, Alan. If this had been a couple of years ago, buddy, then, then this would an evolutionary
1: death. I love how, according to Quinta, like I have fulfilled my. You evolutionary fulfilled purpose. your evolutionary purpose. <laughs> Time to die.
2: Yeah, wait a minute! Wait, wait a minute!
3: He's fulfilled his evolutionary purpose once. <laughs> Genes want uh, hundreds of replications. Oh,
1: oh, I don't I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone wants that in or outside my household. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Theory Mode. I am your co-host, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic, Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. At least most of
1: Alan Rosenstein.
2: (laughs) But the the, the remains of Alan Rosenstein. The
0: the remains of Alan Rosenstein.
1: The least interesting parts of Alan Rosenstein.
0: (laughs) (laughs) At least in the last 72 hours, that's about right. (laughs) That is true. And we are pleased to be joined by, uh, of course, our Editor-in-Chief, International Security co-host Emeritus. Benjamin Wittes. Ben, thanks for joining us
3: here today. I love listening to you try to pronounce America. <coughs> what is
0: Samaritas? How did I say it? Not right, I'm you, sure. You keep,
1: putting, you, keep putting the, you keep putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. That's, that's the problem. Throwing a couple extra consonants in there. You
0: know, you've earned it, Ben. That's why. You get, you get an extra <laughs> syllable for that reason. Alan, we're so happy to have you here today. I'll be honest with you. uh, After we heard about uh, your little surgical situation, we started recruiting a new co-host going out there. Uh, We were ready to have a little alandectomy of our own here uh, on on the podcast, but I'm glad you made it through. And we have your traditional replacement uh, lined up, Ben, just in case. Uh, As we always say, your future self from when you've been out sick in the past. So we're thrilled to have you both here Without creating a time paradox. Although probably that's because we're on the internet. If we were in person, that would be a whole different situation.
3: I want to add an important piece of news about Alan's appendectomy, or maybe we should say Alan's appendix's allendectomy, which (laughs) is that it is the first thing that has made me regret my allergy to slack because I hate slack with the fire of a thousand burning suns. And I'm usually unrepentant about it. But I didn't learn about Alan's appendectomy in a timely fashion because I'm not on Slack very often. And so I think I was the last person to know. And uh, this was the first time I was like, huh, maybe I should be on Slack more.
2: You heard it here first. This is a great advertisement. <laughs> For
1: all your colleague medical paraphernalia needs. <laughs> I, I do want to ask Ben, um, do you have your, if, if, you know, just, 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 just asking for a friend, not like a black market question or anything. Do you still have
3: your appendix out of curiosity? Me? And how attached are yeah. you to it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have my appendix, but here is an awesome anatomical fact about uh, Benjamin Wittes. I only have two wisdom teeth. And I have never had any wisdom teeth extracted. I still have a
2: baby tooth.
3: I'm the next phase of human evolution. You know, I have fewer vestigial uh, organs than most people.
0: Well, we are happy to have both of you here this week with all of your appendages, vestigial or otherwise, to talk over some of the week's big national security news and what we are calling, in your honor, Alan, perhaps in your appendix's honor, the allendectomy edition. (laughs) Thank you. Because we've got... A lot of big news from this week, including the following. Topic one. It's over, but don't leave before the mid-credit sequence. The January 6th committee held its final primetime hearing this past Thursday focused on Trump's inaction and in ending the riot on January 6th. But it suggested more may be coming in the fall. What has the committee accomplished thus far and what is yet to come? Topic two. Oh, hi Mars. That is only going to make sense for people <laughs> the who that? have seen who have seen the movie The Room, the five people who have seen the movie The Room are going to understand why it's the most hilarious title that's I've ever done good. on this
1: show. No, that's very good.
0: But yes, one more time. Oh, Hamas.
2: <laughs> that took me a moment, but I now appreciate what you're doing. That, that's that's inspired. That's one one of I just want to point out that our
3: audio engineer, Jay, got the joke immediately and excitedly put in the chat, The Room!
0: There you oh, go. There you go. Years. It's because of my flawless impression. This, for some reason, is the one accent I can do perfectly, the completely indecipherable <laughs> one from the actor in that movie, but that's okay. The war in Ukraine has become a slow and difficult grind, as Russian forces backed by heavy artillery have made slow but steady progress towards the revised goal of controlling the breakaway Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. But Ukraine recently received what it claims is a game changer, the High Mars rocket system, and wants the United States to give it more. What does this tell us about the dynamics around the support for Ukraine, the risks of escalation, and where the conflict may be headed in this new phase? Finally, topic three. Orange is the new three stupid shirt collars right on top of each other for no goddamn reason. Steve Bannon is going to jail after being found guilty of contempt of Congress.
2: Steve Bannon, fashion icon.
0: (laughs) Steve and fashion icon is going to jail after being found guilty of contempt of Congress. And assuming that the conviction holds up on appeal, what will his conviction mean for the January six investigation and future inquiries? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it
1: over to you to get us started. Thank, thank you, Scott. And I do just want to take a moment uh, to say these are particularly good uh, segment titles. I mean, you're 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 kind of a savant at this, and I know. I'm, just how much time and energy you spend on these 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 three were were very good well done you'll understand why I, I how I was able to get to these when I get to my object lesson <laughs> but just wait <laughs> yeah for for listeners in our uh, in our shared show notes documents <laughs> under Scott's it just says booze in all capital letters that's the preview um uh, all right so we we've been talking on this podcast on the other lawfare podcasts on our lawfare Twitter spaces about the January 6th committee hearings for a while now, as we should. They're very important. Um, and so I, I want to try something a little different to start this kind of conversation off now that this first primary phase of committee hearings is over. I want to go around. I'm going to start with with Ben, and then I'll ask Quinta, and then I'll ask Scott. And I just want your like, one sentence. Is this a success or failure, and why? Right. So Ben, one sentence. Success or failure, and why?
3: It is an enormous success because... It told a story we did not previously know or did not previously fully know uh, that is necessary to evaluate the question of political accountability of the former president, and that is what the committee was set up to do, and uh, I cannot see the argument that it did not accomplish that goal.
1: Okay, that was, that was a little bit of a run-on sentence, but that was still technically one sentence. I just want to
3: say, uh, you actually <laughs> said one or two sentences.
2: There were semicolons in there.
3: I did it with one sentence and a bunch of conjunctions. <laughs> I followed instructions, man.
1: Fair, fair enough. Quint, Quint, your turn. I feel
2: like I'm, I'm drafting a tweet and I only get 280 <laughs> characters. I would say, yeah, they were a resounding success and... Substantially moved the ball forward, not only in our understanding of Trump's moral and political and potentially legal accountability for what happened on January 6th, but also represent kind of a light year's jump forward in terms of what a congressional committee can do and how it can communicate its message effectively to the public. There were a lot of ands in there too. Sorry.
0: Scott, what do you got? Well, I was going to warn you in advance. I'm going to Emily Dickinson the hell out of this sentence (laughs) by dashing (laughs) left and right. So just prepare yourself. Uh, Generally, I think it was a major success. The committee did everything I think it could reasonably have done to weaken Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party, which, in my view, is its main
1: objective. Whether it'll be enough remains to be seen. Okay, so I, I, sadly, I will also agree with you all. I, I wish I could disagree, but the, 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 let me use that to then kind of ask before we get into the details, kind of a, a, maybe a meta question about Congress. For me, one of the most striking things coming out of the committee hearings, and I'm curious what you all think, is that Congress is actually very good when it wants to be. Like, it's it is capable of like remarkably impressive, investigative, political, whatever you name it. And my takeaway is that like. What this shows is that fundamentally the problem in Congress is when partisanship and in particular, stupid partisanship gets in the way. And that if you can just engineer processes in which, again, you don't even need to have only kind of one party in charge. You can have a bipartisan process as long as you don't have like Jim Jordan on the committee being an idiot all the time. Congress is an incredibly capable branch of government. Like I cannot think of a more impressive thing Congress has done. In the last several decades, right? I mean, even when you compare this to major legislation, which is obviously an impressive thing, like the last pieces of major legislation have been whether you agree with them or not, you know, the tax cuts or Obamacare or whatever, that process was not very good. Whereas this has just been exceptionally impressive. And like, where the hell has this Congress been? Quinto, what do you think?
2: This is something that uh, repeat Rational Security guest Molly Reynolds and I have been thinking about and are hoping to write something about odd lawfare so listeners can consider this uh, a bit of a preview. I think it's absolutely right that this shows what Congress can do. Um, and i 'd also point listeners to josh Chaffetz's work um, he 's at Georgetown on congressional overspeech that 's overspeech as a play on oversight. The argument essentially being that you know part of what Congress does is not only conduct oversight in a sort of dry mechanical sense but also perform, communicate, use hearings as a way of telling a story, and this is a great example of how that can work. I think that the committee had an unbelievably impressive media strategy, not only in terms of getting on cable networks, but also social media. Um, There's a lot of real cleverness in how they sort of set up moments to be memed and reposted. And I can definitely talk about that. At the same time, I also think it's true, and I'm, I'm channeling Molly a bit here, so credit goes to her as well, that this is not a model that is going to be repeatable on everything. Um, you know, so you're totally right, Ellen, that I think this was possible because of uh, incredibly unusual bipartisan agreement across the members. And And Molly pointed out on Twitter, you know, you saw Democratic members let Republican members chair a hearing, which just never happens. But it's also true that, you know, there are going to be a lot of important policy issues, like, for example, tax cuts, healthcare, infrastructure, that there just isn't bipartisan agreement on. And that does make this harder. It's also true that, you know, most of what Congress does is not big, flashy investigations. Certainly there are some examples of that, but you know, not everything can be big and flashy. Not everything that Congress tries to make big and flashy is actually big and flashy, right? I mean, if you think about those dreadful and hearings with tech company CEOs where Congress essentially, you know, somebody waves around an iPhone and asks why their campaign emails are getting sent to spam, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm being, you know, intentionally facetious, but like, there is a lot of work that is over speech, not in a way of telling a story, but just sort of rambling. And I do think that that is different. It's also true that, you know, There are plenty of examples of hearings that are super important, but also super dry and technical and not suited to this kind of work. All of which is to say, extremely impressive. I would not be surprised if it kind of changes the paradigm for what we expect of congressional hearings going forward. I would also not be surprised if people are a little disappointed. Yeah, I just want to add
3: that I think... First, uh, 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 that the hearings are a little bit less unprecedented than people sometimes imagine uh, in recent congressional history. And secondly, one note of caution about my otherwise enthusiastic reaction. The precedents here are two other recent examples of genuinely superb congressional investigative work product. Uh, One of them, very bipartisan, which was the Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russian interference in the 2016 election, which, uh, you know, didn't get a lot of attention, but uh, was uh, actually chaired by a Republican, you know, most of it for by Richard Burr, and then ultimately by Marco Rubio, which uh, at least until 2018. And the second which was done under exceedingly difficult circumstances, and uh, I don't think he ever gets enough credit for it, is the House Intelligence Committee investigation led by Adam Schiff that led to the first impeachment. Uh, and remember, that's that, it was that investigation which produced the Fiona Hill testimony, the Alex Vindman testimony, the uh, George Kent and Masha Yovanovitch testimony, And these, in many ways, this investigation kind of draws on that model, which is doing a lot of the investigation in private and then kind of having hearings that are sort of showpiece hearings uh, of repetition of material that was developed in private depositions. And that brings me to what I think is the, my, I don't know if it's a criticism, but it's a regret about these hearings, which is that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we actually used to have investigative hearings in public, and some of them were excellent. And, you know, I am old enough to remember the Iran-Contra hearings as a quasi-adult. Uh, and those were like, you know, the idea of the House and to, in a different way of the Senate as the kind of grand inquest of the nation, that, you know, you know, Mike Izakoff may not be able to force you to answer his questions, but a Senate committee sure can and to ask the question, to force people to answer the questions that a journalist can't make you answer without a criminal process behind it. I think you lose something when the hearings themselves become these kind of pageants where you're presenting material that is already developed. Uh, And so while I understand why, why it was done, and if I had been advising the committee, I probably would have urged them to do exactly what they did. I do regret the loss of the actual public investigative committee and the fact that so much of this stuff is now done in secret.
0: I'm going to take a slightly more skeptical tone, although I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. This is a really unique factual circumstance in which the committee is operating here. And it's not one that's going to repeat itself often, I don't think. And and therefore, I think this output is kind of unique. Uh, It's unique because you have a congressional investigation that's, you know, being led predominantly by one party, or at least very cooperatively, with limited participation from another party in a very cooperative fashion Um, that's set up by the weird politics around the formation of this committee. Although you could see more of that, and maybe you will see more of that by committees just doing what they've already started doing with written reports and leaning into the fact that you're going to have a majority and a minority. Minority account of the facts, and then majority using its leverage to make its account the leading one, the primary one, particularly for public presentation purposes. Again, that's actually kind of the norm, uh, or not the norm, but very common practice in the written products that often come out of committees. So it wouldn't be strange to see that happen with other media as well, insofar as other media is used more often, which might be another kind of thing adaptation from this we see Congress leaning into. But a lot of what they were actually able to do so effectively came to the fact that this is a conversation about stuff that happened a year ago, that they had a lot of time to investigate, set up, um, that frankly, they were operating on a little bit of a timeline because at least under my theory of what they're operating to do here, they're really trying to get stuff done before the election. So they had kind of two years on board in which they could set this out and prepare and work towards an objective and craft a public message because they have a very public-leaning purpose here. That's not the case with a lot of what Congress does oversight-wise. In fact, the vast majority really aim for a much more elite audience where written reports kind of make more sense in a lot of ways. So I'm just not sure that many lessons are going to transfer directly in terms of seeing things like this again, although certain elements of practices think they've done well certainly might. The big factor that's a difference here, though, is it's a cooperative executive branch. You don't have a cooperative executive branch, you don't get a lot of this information. You don't get a lot of these witnesses, even the ones that are, you know, do not like what Trump was doing. I don't think a lot of those executive branch or former executive branch officials would have been excited about participating with the committee if they had had more top cover from the executive branch. So,
1: you know, for those reasons, I'm not sure we will repeat itself. Scott, I just I just want to make sure I understand your your point. Is is the idea that if we had a you know if Trump were still in office or there had been some different Republican in office, they would support, for example, all these claims of executive privilege? of the previous administration, and that would prevent or disincentivize or give cover to these witnesses not coming in. I'm just curious what you mean exactly, or or, or why why you think that having a cooperative White House is so important here, where fundamentally this isn't about this White House, it's about the previous White House.
0: Well, you got to remember a lot of the documents we got here were from a case to the National Archives that they got because the Biden administration had waived executive privilege and executive privilege that might have applied. They're actually a little kin savvy about you know to what extent it would have applied to everything, but they waived it where it did apply more or less. And I do think that if you had an administration that was actively opposed to many of these witnesses testifying, I think many of them would be a lot more reluctant to come forward. And frankly, as we've seen in the cases of. You know, everyone except for Steve Bannon so far, the tools to actually really compel people to testify are actually kind of weak right now. Uh, And they take time to operate and they take resources both for the committee and for the Justice Department. So, you know, you have to pick your battles for how many people you, you can actually coerce or compel to testify to these sorts of things. You know, having the threat of the of a friendly justice department, I think, provided a lot more leverage uh, in getting witnesses to cooperate and, and encourage a lot of them to be cooperative from the outset. And the other issue, it's worth noting, this is also just an issue where there's just a lot of bipartisan agreement, I think, among political elites for lack of a way to put it, who really take democratic values seriously. Like, I think a lot of people, even in the Trump administration, took real issue with what happened on January 6th. Genuinely, I could be wrong, but that's my sense. And That's not going to be true of a lot of other
3: issues as well. I just want to add that the reasons that Scott just articulated is precisely the reason that I said that the House Intelligence Committee investigation of the Ukraine matter was a much more difficult investigation to conduct in very important respects. They were operating with an incumbent administration that did not cooperate at all. Uh, The Justice Department not only was not enforcing their subpoenas, it was obstructing them in important respects. It was backing essentially all claims of privilege. And yet they nonetheless developed an enormous body, mostly through witness cooperation of really, really important information. And so I, I just think as we give the January 6th committee credit, I do think the SSCI investigations of the 2016 election interference and the House Intelligence Committee investigation. They were less loud, uh, although the House Intelligence Committee investigation was very loud, but they were less effective at public communication, but they were operating under v- much more difficult uh, circumstances from an investigative point of view.
1: Before we close out this segment, I, I want to talk about, and I apologize, I, f- I forget which one of you pointed out that like one of the main accomplishments here is Weakening, or hopefully weakening, or potentially weakening Trump's hold on the on the GOP. I mean, I do agree that that is, I think, probably in at least in the short term, the most important effect. I mean, obviously, there's the making historical record, which isn't really important. There's this whole question of maybe incentivizing or pushing or informing DOJ's decision to prosecute something we've all talked about endlessly. But you know, it's just in terms of like the immediate health of American democracy, harming Trump's political fortunes does seem very important here. And I guess I have two questions here. You know, one is, is that an appropriate thing for a bipartisan congressional committee to do, right? Should it be engaged in this sort of explicitly political goal, right? Now it's Congress, and maybe the answer is, well, yeah, it's Congress, it's political. Um, But I think there might be something interesting here. Um, And the second thing, and I'm really curious what, what you all think, is to the extent that Trump is damaged, in particular with respect to his base, what is it that's doing it, right? Is it that we, wow, we finally see what a monster Trump is, or wow, we finally see what a screw up Trump is, or wow, we finally see what a ketchup flinging lunatic Trump, like, what is it exactly um, that to the extent that, you know, Trump is replaced by Ron DeSantis and query whether that's like such a huge victory for American democracy? What, what is it that did it in these hearings?
2: I think it's a it's a really interesting question, and I don't think we can know the answer until we see more polling, right? Because in the absence of data, we're just kind of prognosticating. I would certainly guess that probably what what is happening, if something is happening, is twofold. One is that the sort of soft Trump supporters who were never crazy about the tweets and all that, uh, now hear the stuff about, you know, the catch up on the wall, et cetera, and just think, oh God, I don't want more of this. Um, and so that it's not, you know, the core base supporters, but it's the people who are always amenable to being picked off. You know, the same kind of people who uh, perhaps voted down ballot in states like Georgia for the Republican ticket, but didn't vote for Trump for president in a second term, um, or were thinking about doing that. So that's one thing. The other thing that I would point to is, I mean, Your question about is this appropriate? Yeah, it's appropriate. It's Congress. It's a political body. I think that actually thinking about the committee as creating a space for pushing political accountability as opposed to legal or criminal accountability is actually really important in understanding how what the committee is doing is different from what the Justice Department is doing. The Justice Department shouldn't be engaged in that kind of work, but the committee absolutely can and should.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, the only thing I would add to it is that it's very clear that Representative Cheney, at least, because uh, her speech is the one that did it most expressly, but really the whole committee has been operating on a theory about what's going to impact Republican voters. And if you haven't, you know, if you didn't hear them or you haven't gone back to look at it, or really listen to it carefully, go back and listen to Representative Cheney's closing remarks on the last hearing, the primetime hearing. I just rewatched it because I listened to the audio while I was traveling. So I ended up rewatching it earlier today. I remind myself I was really struck by them on re-listening and re-reading them because she really states her, th- her, her strategy and the strategy the community has been pursuing, making the point, look, Every witness you've heard from here, with a few minor exceptions, are established Republicans, conservative Republicans, people who believe in what the Trump administration did as a policy in most regards, if not all regards, including herself. But here they're drawing a line and they have real issues with what Donald Trump has done. Not only that, they have were in many ways personally betrayed or endangered or otherwise felt like they had been double-crossed by Trump himself at a personal level. Their advice was ignored uh, by him very clearly. They really hit that point in this last session where they talk about how Trump just refused to listen to his staffers in terms of putting a statement out there to try and do anything to quell the violence. And they really put all the responsibility here on Donald Trump's shoulders along the way, really lionizing Republicans who stood up, Mike Pence first among them. I might, nobody came out of this smelling more like roses than Mike Pence to an extent that he will not himself embrace because it's too politically problematic for him. Right. It's exceptional. It's really interesting. And they clearly think like, this is the way by presenting people who seem like credible witnesses, framing their comments in a way that's really hard to reject the information that's easy to process, easy to digest as much as Congress can, that you're going to hear, the people who find those people to be credible might be persuadable. Now, is that enough to disrupt the big lie? I suspect it's going to ding it and you know do some damage to it. I think it already has. But it, it's still a long time to go between now, I mean, the elections in 2022, and then more importantly, the Republican primary race leading in 2024, when we're really going to see the shit hit the fan in this particular area. I mean, that's when we're going to see the fight for the Republican Party, that this is teeing up. Uh, And it very well may be between Cheney herself and Donald Trump, probably some other folks in the mix as well. But you know, right now, from how I think about what people find credible and find politically persuasive, it seems like they've put forward, again, the strongest case that I could think of. I can't think of much they could have done that would have been more persuasive or better if that's their goal.
1: From tinpot pot dictators at home to tinpot pot dictators abroad. It's like a reverse. It's like a reverse. You know what?
2: Let's go with that. I think that that is the transition that that we need right now.
1: It's not the one we want, but it's the one we need.
2: Yes. So, uh, so now we're going to talk about, I actually have no idea how people pronounce this acronym. Is it HIMARS?
0: HIMARS.
2: <laughs> I'm not going to do the Tommy Wiseau impression. Uh, it's so th-
3: HIMARS.
2: Hi-Mars? No, it okay It just gets funnier um, the
3: more I think about it. <laughs>
2: So this is HIMARS, which stands for, and I looked this up, High Mobility Advanced Rocket System. Uh, So this is a weapon system of which the U.S. and other allies recently passed a handful to Ukraine. It seems to be making a pretty significant difference, potentially, um, in the ongoing Ukrainian effort against Russia in the the country's east. And as part of that, there's also been a, a heated debate, I think it's fair to say, about what the U.S. should do here going forward. Is this a, a opportunity to send even more of these systems to Ukraine and kind of help the Ukrainians uh, seize the advantage? Is that too dangerous insofar as it could be provoking more of a direct conflict with Russia, at least in in Russia's perspective? Um, Ukraine has been lobbying, I think, pretty heavily for, for more of these systems. So Ben, I know you've been watching the Ukraine conflict very closely. I'm, I'm curious as an as a initial matter, if you think it's correct that these systems have made that big of a, a difference? And then also, you know, what what to think about this policy question?
3: Yeah, so there's no question that in uh, the short term, they have made a very substantial difference. Uh, And the reason is twofold. Um, One is that they have allowed uh, the Ukrainians to hit with uh, real precision, these major ammunition dumps that the Russians have, they've known the locations of, but they haven't been able to hit precisely before. And so you know, now they are able to hit them at quite great distance. The second is that the artillery batteries themselves are vulnerable to these. And, uh, you know, being able to aim well matters. And U.S. uh, weapons are just in a different league from everyone else's in terms of the ability to hit things accurately from a distance. It is hard to overstate the excitement that these uh, weapons have generated in Ukraine. You will uh, notice if you Google, if you uh, search on Twitter for the phrase Heimar's a O'Clock, uh, you will find that it is used uh, just about every evening Ukraine time for that point in time where uh, this is the, you know, where the sun goes down and all of a sudden a bunch of Russian ammunition depots and uh, positions get blown up. There is an important note of caution here, and it is uh, uh, was ably articulated uh, in a conversation between Michael Corman and, and Dmitry alparovich on on a recent uh, podcast of theirs, you know, wars are not static things in which one weapon system suddenly changes everything that happens but then the other side adapts and so you know there's no question that in the short term the HIMARS are making a a significant difference the ukrainian enthusiasm for the idea that it is the game changer assumes that you're playing a, a a sort of one level game right uh, you're not. You're playing a, uh, a multi-iteration game. And the Russians will adapt to this. Uh, that said, is it an important weapon system for the Ukrainians? Absolutely. That brings me briefly to the policy question. You know, the Ukrainian need for these are extreme. I think we should be facilitating as much delivery of as useful weapon systems as humanly possible. Uh, There's a lot of anxiety in the administration about the range of, you know, some of the the longer range systems that could reach into Russia, that could, you know, have offensive capability. I honestly do not share that concern. Uh, My view is that, and has been from the beginning, that there is greater risk right now of deterring ourselves than there is of provoking Putin. And uh, I have seen very limited evidence that there that Putin even really has much capacity to escalate here. And I think we have uh, a lot of concern that is, you know, the the greater concern is inaction than action. And yes, I get accused every day of being a warmonger who wants to trigger World War III whenever I make that point.
1: I want to just briefly riff off that this last point Ben made about Putin's. Lack of capacity for escalation, and, and you know, one thing that I found really interesting. Obviously, the, the specific weapon systems at issue are impressive, and, and you know they have their tactical advantages and disadvantages and whatnot. But one thing that has struck me is that the sheer effectiveness that they have is an indication that you know the Russians are at a very bad margin in this war right now. I mean, you know, everyone has their favorite. Russian Ukraine military analyst on Twitter, right? But I do think there is a kind of consensus that the Russian military, right? I think it's the third largest military in the world. I mean, you know, nuclear power. I mean, these, these are serious people, has committed something like 85 or 90% of their forces to fairly ineffectively occupy 15% of Ukraine. I mean, it, it's, it's, when you think about it in this perspective, it's completely insane. And so they are at the absolute, absolute margin of what they can do. And These rocket launchers, which are, again, they're impressive, but this isn't like magic, right? They're just rocket launchers, um, are having this extraordinary effect. And it just, I think, really goes to show that, man, the Russian military is screwed. Like they are just in a terrible, terrible position. And there's just no world in which this ends well for them. You know, that, of course, and I suspect this is what the Biden administration is concerned about you know, that is what then leads Putin to start taking bigger and bigger risks. And then we start talking about nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And so I understand the level of of caution. But it does all seem to come back to the the fact that, um, you know, for fairly small gains, and again, none of this is to minimize the toll on Ukraine, obviously, but for in the grand scheme of things, fairly small territorial gains, Russia has utterly expended itself. And it's just, it's wild to see. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga.
0: Yeah, I I think that's generally right, but I I think there's a little more strategic context around this that's worth thinking about, because it's kind of like a multi-level process that's kind of set out signaling that the administration, in my view, is kind of engaging in here. And we see this happen every time there is one of these new weapons about, is this the thing that's going to make a big difference? And there's reluctance among certain American quarters, often very openly trumpeted um, by folks in the Biden administration, or like not so subtly leaked from DOD saying, oh, we're a little worried about escalation around this stuff. We're talking about internally, it slows a little bit of the role going to the Ukrainians. We see kind of a public pressure campaign a lot of it's very genuine for people who support ukraine frankly some of it probably is strategic i have no doubt in putting pressure on the administration to say no these are real big things all of a sudden we know what a HIMARS mars is and we think everybody needs to have it or else we're taking it easy on putin you know that's not a coincidence that that, that, that keeps happening like just like it did with javelins and f-16s to sort of other things and then most of the time the Biden administration ends up caving or at least visibly caving saying okay we relent we will give this to them but we thought about it very carefully I think this is mostly a dance by the Biden administration. I think there's mostly the Biden administration underscoring the necessity of giving time and pacing and signaling a desire not to escalate to Russians and showing how seriously they take it. The real lines for escalation, the Biden administration drew very early uh, and very savvily, I think, actually in a way that I didn't appreciate at the time. Very early, they said, we're not sending ground troops into Ukraine. And we're not going to support Ukrainian operations in Russia. They may do them, but we're not going to directly support them. Those are the two big red lines that seem to still be in place. And that's the important kind of conditionality that they always emphasize when they give these weapons to the Ukrainians. And it did cause some problems. So like with the F-16, there was a concern about like, well, what if it's perceived as operating out of Germany if they fly the planes directly from Germany to Ukrainian territory? That caused a little bit of, I think, a genuine headache, although even that, I think, was a little overblown. There's a good argument that that just wasn't the right kind of weapon set to transfer the Ukrainians a lot of this is just about signaling and, and and saying, well, look, we want to make clear to Russia and to the world that we are not the aggressor. We are not escalating. In fact, we're trying to counter push back against those narratives, but still we're going to give the Ukrainians what they want. And so far there hasn't been many signs they're Seriously, I'm going to put major obstacles there. Instead it's a matter of allowing for time to allow for these dance. That may be frustrating for folks on the ground. I'm sure it is. And it does. We shouldn't have any illusions. That doesn't mean, you know, people are dying who might not die. Otherwise, if these weapons got there faster. But it also is a way of signaling, again, this both, frankly, keeping the international community united or relatively united and putting pressure on Russia, maybe bringing more people in, uh, and by um, hopefully signaling to Russia, again, that's how carefully these efforts are being made to not escalate. Because there is certainly much more the United States could do.
3: Yeah, I agree very much with that characterization of the dance. And it's one of the reasons I've really stayed out of the uh, debates over which specific systems should and shouldn't go. Uh, I do think that there is one element to the dance that Scott doesn't mention that I I think is actually really important to it, which is the almost catastrophic failure of communications between Ukraine and the West uh, in the run-up to the war. Which we've all agreed to paper over, but was actually a disaster, and both sides bear some responsibility for it. So the American position was hey, we're saying in public, this is going to happen. You guys are going to get fucking invaded. Get ready, do something about it. Ukrainian position, including that of the sainted uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, was Uh, nah, it's not gonna happen. You know, chill out. We're gonna, we're gonna have parties in Kiev. But if you're serious about this, why aren't you giving us weapons? Right? And the, the American position was, hey, we're giving you warning. You're really, this is really gonna happen. And there was a sort of frustration with, with, uh, the degree to which the intelligence warnings were not taken seriously. The Ukrainian positions were, you know, you're overreacting. But if you're serious about this, why aren't you giving us serious weapons? And I think there was actually a lot of truth in both sides. I I think when the history of that period is written, Zelensky will have something to answer for, for for the lack of preparation. I also think the Biden administration will... Uh, the Ukrainians have an argument that we were slow to get them precisely because of the dance that Scott describes. And also because, let's be honest, we thought the Russians were going to be in Kiev in three days. And it was partly the proof of concept that the Ukrainian armed forces were actually capable of defending the country uh, that you know, caused American policymakers radically to rethink what our degree of investment in it. We had been preparing for, oh, can we support an insurgency there for a long period of time? We were thinking about it in very different terms. And I think that background sets up a lot of the points that Scott is making, that every time this dance happens, the Ukrainian reaction is, why are you guys so fucking slow with the weapons? And the U.S. reaction is, you know, hey, we've got some bigger picture issues here that we've got to think through. And both sides are right.
0: From high Mars to high fashion, let's shift our <laughs> focus to <laughs> oh, one.
3: Nicely
0: done. Everybody's Mr. Anderson, take a bow. <laughs> Our favorite fashion forward fascist uh, who is known for uh, a unique personal style, um, but maybe having to adapt to a little bit of a different wardrobe as he may be headed to a penitentiary near you or at least near us here in Washington, D.C. sometime soon. This past week, we saw Steve Bannon convicted for contempt of Congress after surprisingly short deliberations uh, at a surprisingly short trial fairly handily. The now has been promising to take the issue to appeal, uh, particularly around defenses that his attorney indicated that they intended to present that were foreclosed by the court uh, and that the court argued was foreclosed by D.C. Circuit precedent, uh, at least in substantial part. Uh, So there's some question as to, to what extent this conviction will hold. But nonetheless, it is really the first time we've seen a close advisor or someone in the orbit of former President Trump be held accountable to some extent, Not necessarily for January 6th in this case, but for not cooperating with the investigation of January 6th at least, which seems like a step in the direction of accountability to many, no doubt. Quinta, let me start with you on this one. What should we be making of this particular conviction? What signal is it sending to others? How is it going to ripple, if at all, into kind of the broader discussion, both in terms of the January 6th investigation and the the calculus that other actors are going in terms of their cooperation, not cooperation with the committee? or the justice department's approach to criminal investigation or even of course the Georgia investigation we talked about last week where does this fit into that much broader narrative
2: I think it's a huge victory for the committee uh first off obviously this is this is a case brought by DOJ for a contempt resolution passed by Congress, I do think that kind of division of labor between the branches is important to keep in mind here, precisely because uh, a future administration may not be so uh, enthusiastic. Um, But the fact that, you know, this is the first contempt prosecution in decades and, Bannon lost is a is a big moment, especially I think, given how, as we talked about in, in referencing the House Intelligence Committee investigation, you know, we're coming out of a few years under the Trump investigation where Congress was really hampered in its ability to not only obtain information, but show that there would be consequences if people did not provide information. Because otherwise, you know, you're a total paper tiger. You know, you you say. Here's a subpoena. Give me your documents. And the person says, "So what?" And you don't really have an answer. I think here they they have an answer <laughs> for Steve Bannon, and it's it's particularly perhaps satisfying in a way because if if you recall, Bannon was out there early on saying that this was going to be the the misdemeanor from hell, and he was going to drag Nancy Pelosi into court to question her. And I maybe it is the misdemeanor from hell, but I think that's for Steve Bannon rather than for for anybody else. So that is a powerful signal to send. Um, I think there's, frankly, on a kind of over-speechy angle, power to making someone who likes to present himself as, you know, diabolical and above it all, like Bannon, making him look kind of ridiculous, In the face of the legal system. I will note there's a great video on Twitter of uh, Bannon trying to give remarks to the press after a day of his trial, and he's drowned out by someone who appears to be blowing a kazoo. (laughs) So ridiculous in that sense as well. I think that's a powerful symbol, you know, that this is not a group of people who are above the law. That said, it is also true that the specific circumstances of Bannon's refusal to comply with these subpoenas are Unique. Um, perhaps he was uniquely aggressive in rejecting the subpoena and going on his podcast to talk about how he wasn't going to comply. Um, Jonathan Schaub and Ricky Krup have a great piece on Lawfare about the difference between the Bannon case and the other two cases, uh, Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino, both aides to Trump, that DOJ chose not to prosecute for contempt despite a congressional resolution to that effect. And so if you want to look last half empty, you could say, okay, sure, they got Bannon, but what about all these other guys. So I don't want to be too triumphal.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's important just to not lose sight of the, the fact that, you know, the reason Bannon or one reason, at least that Bannon had such a difficult time, right? His lawyer, and this has got to go down as one of the, this is going to go down as just an incredibly famous sentence, right? Like, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something like, what's the point of going to trial if you have no defenses? And the judge is like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fair point, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons that there was no defenses is because, again, of this, you know, particular, I think at this point, almost 60 year old precedent in the D.C. Circuit that says that, you know, you cannot use your advice of counsel as a defense, you know, uh, against a, a, a willful noncompliance with the, with the subpoena, right? You know, th- this decision, um, I think, uh, Licavoli L- 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 versus, you know, the United States, you know, it's an old decision. It's a very short decision. Like, there's not like a particularly elaborately reasoned decision. You know, Judge Nichols said he thinks that it may very well just be wrong, um, but he's just a district court judge. He doesn't get to over overrule that. So, you know, I think it's important, again, you know, this, this conviction may 100% be reversed on appeal. Right. Uh, and so I'm not sure that means that Bannon gets the last laugh exactly. Um, but we should be cautious. You know, if you are someone who is similarly situated to Bannon, you know, do you say, well, I'm going to roll the dice as well, because I think I'm going to even when I lose, I'm going to do this appeal. And I think this decision on the D.C. Circuit and I can count the votes. You know, maybe not. Right. So from a practical perspective, I think this does have to be viewed as a win ultimately for congressional oversight. But again, I think it's just really, really important not to forget the the fact that when you have no defenses, it is kind of hard to win a trial.
3: <laughs> yeah, a couple things. things. Uh, first of all, a D.C. Circuit precedent can only be overturned, failing Supreme Court intervention by the en banc D.C. Circuit. I actually think the likelihood that this decision has legs uh, unless the Supreme Court decides to get involved, which, you know, given the uh, composition of the Supreme Court is a is a kind of anybody's guess, but uh, is failing that. I do not see the D.C. Circuit as, you know, overturning one of its own precedents on an en banc basis uh, on behalf of Steve Bannon. I just, as you know, Scott Clerk there, he knows the institution better than I do, but that's just my gut. I do want to say that I think this is a big win for the committee for a reason that, Quinta uh, did not articulate, which is that I think you have to see these prosecutions in conjunction with the Justice Department's investigation. Uh, first of all, everybody who defied the committee the and whom the Justice Department decided not to prosecute, the Justice Department knows that it has a second bite at the apple with Mark Meadows, with... Uh, scavino anytime it wants to put them in front of a grand jury it can and they the the arguments that they can make about defying a congressional committee they cannot make about a grand jury there is no attorney-client privilege before a grand jury when you're a government employee so the justice department has the leisure of saying you know heck we're not going to lose a criminal case we're not going to risk losing a case over the committee's subpoena to Mark Meadows, we'll just give him our own subpoena and he's not going to defy that. Or if he does, we'll put him in civil contempt and just lock him up, as uh, General Flynn might say. And so I think the, the message that this sends, assuming that eventually the Justice Department demands testimony from the Meadowses and the, uh, the Scavinos of the world, the message that it sends is, if you are one of those people who has a plausible argument with respect to the committee, rather than prosecute you on behalf of the committee, we're just going to deal with you ourselves. If you're not one of those people, you cannot defy the committee. And so I think the the, the end of the Meadows and Scavino story has yet to be written and it looks very different if the Justice Department ends up getting their testimony than if they actually walk away without ever testifying.
0: So I I agree with a lot of that. I, I will say I am a little bit more worried about like a volley on appeal, although maybe not actually having an impact on this case. Um, The opinion is worth a look for folks who haven't taken the time to pull off. It is, as Alan noted, extremely short opinion written in that nice, easy, breezy 1960s federal court way uh, where, where, uh, you know, it it doesn't exactly have the level of rigor (laughs) one might expect. Um, But importantly here, it really addresses almost the entirety of a relatively short opinion addressing a very specific kind of idiosyncratic statutory argument that the plaintiffs or the appellants in that case were arguing about like where willfully fits within the contempt statute, essentially, and and arguing that there are two different prongs of the contempt statute have different kind of mens rea requirements. It's not terribly relevant here, but it's relevant for how the opinion might be used by a D.C. circuit after the fact, or frankly, probably could have been used by this district court judge, because it really sets it up that a lot of the conclusions he's drawing from it are leaning pretty heavily on what I think could or perhaps should be characterized as dicta. And it wouldn't necessarily be categorically that different to distinguish in certain ways. I mean, here it really is, in the like of only case, it has a a line that says, look, uh, essentially, just because you relied on an attorney doesn't mean that does isn't a defense to this sort of offense. That's all it really says that's directly relevant to this argument here. And that's what the judge seems to be leaning on here. And that strikes me as kind of a Problem um, If you're acting in an area where you actually think there may be constitutional constraints on what Congress can subpoena, because if you're not a lawyer and you are in a constitutionally fraught area, then of course you are going to have to turn to a legal counsel for advice on that. And, you know, you're going to have to follow it here. So you're not just relying upon, you know, attorneys advice that might be mistaken or vague, which was, if I recall correctly, I think the case in like a that the lawyer just kind of gave bad advice that that might be the case here. But, you know, there are going to be cases where it's an unsettled legal question as to whether this is actually within the scope of what Congress can request. Um, And that might be an issue. Now, I think two things. Probably make that a harder case for Bannon than it might be for a different situation. Defendant one, his constitutional case is just way weaker uh, because of his, you know, distance from the presidency and the White House. Even though, you know,
2: right, yeah, it's not even clear that Trump invoked executive privilege at all.
0: A hundred percent, exactly. Like, just all the facts for a privilege claim here are, are weak. Um, you know, I don't know if they are like categorically beyond reproach, but they are damn close. If they're not, so I think that's a problem here. And then I think even more problematically, uh, and something we've talked about on this podcast before. Bannon took the stance that he was not going to cooperate or engage at all. If there were any privilege here, it would be a privilege that applies to only certain types of information, and probably a qualified basis on on that. So there is really no argument for categorically not engaging, which actually has many closer parallels to the Liekovoli case and what what was done there. Um, That seemed to be sort of an issue. So I could see, you know, I could see that the way the D.C. Circuit might try and clean up Liekovoli by acknowledging, look. In the cases where there's a constitutional question, a genuine legal question, like you can't just say, oh, you can't rely on lawyers, you got to show up anyway, because that just kind of boots out those constitutional questions. But you Still, in this case, that's not an excuse to not show up at all. And the fact that we saw Bannon try and reverse that position and say, oh, no, I actually will talk to the committee right before trial started um, strikes me as, as an effort to try and clean that up maybe a little bit for appeal or, or realizing that they needed that legal argument to say, oh, we really were just trying to talk about privilege in a very specific, much more justifiable context. And, and that makes me think that's kind of like the legal strategy to lean into. I don't think it'll be useful in this case, but I do think we might see like Avoli substantially conditioned and limited by the D.C. Circuit uh, on review here. I don't even think you need to go to Ombank and that, you know, precedent is precedent, but when it's a broadly worded old opinion that has never only been cited by one district court uh, in the DC circuit before in 1961 has never been relied on since then, as far as I can tell, at least in published opinions, you know, the DC circuit has ways to kind of massage and condition and put new light on old opinions. And I I think we might see that happen here. I don't think it's going to help Bannon, but it does mean it's going to be a little bit of a muddier outcome than people might think.
2: Out of curiosity, can I ask, since you think that like a might not require throwing out the advice of counsel defense, do you have a sense of why Judge Nichols, who's the the trial judge, like he seemed quite certain that it did and that he disagreed with the fact that it firmly held that. Do you have a sense of why he read it that way?
0: I, I don't know, and I you know, I, you it really depends on individual trial judges and look, running a trial is hard work and has a lot of different judgment calls that are made. Um and so you know, it's hard to know exactly. and and really frankly, like, you know, appellate courts, I think are very understanding of district court judges and how hard their work is uh, and and maybe friendly in trying to revisit or revise some of their opinions. I kind of think in this case, he frankly, he saw a clear quote. And it gave him an easy out from having to deal with a lot of these issues in a case where they seemed primarily frivolous, honestly. And it seemed like a very clean way to move past it. And like I said, I kind of think there are ways that a D.C. circuit could condition like Leicavoli and clean it up without necessarily finding that Bannon was wrongly convicted. Um, And so, um, you know, the alternative for him would be to say, okay, there is this precedent. Somebody cited it. Yeah, it's only been cited by one district court ever. And it's a little vague. It's a little weird. But then he has to do this. You know, dangerous work of conditioning and setting limits on this existing precedent, and then hoping the DC Circuit affirms him. In reality, they're probably just going to take a different tack or rewrite it. You know, in this case, he gets to kind of just pass the question to them. Well, folks, we unfortunately are out of time for today. But before we leave you with another week without the sounds of our voice, uh, unless you listen to one of our other podcasts, uh, then uh, we would not be rational security if we did not give you some object lessons to think of in your time between our episodes. Alan, let me give it over to you to present the first object lesson.
1: I feel like the object lesson has to be my appendix. But again, despite many requests uh, for it in a mason jar and formaldehyde, I do not have it. So, that's my object lesson in spirit. Uh, my real object lesson uh, is actually I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go inside the lawfare, the clubhouse. Is uh, Scott's podcast actually uh, that came out well today, Tuesday? Uh, Though you're listening to this on Wednesday, in which he discusses with Iowa law professor Derek Muller the Supreme Court's recent grant of certiorari in Moore versus Harper, which raises the question about the independent state legislature doctrine and when the Supreme Court granted cert on it led to uh, a v- remarkably high volume of uh, democracy is over in this country. And it's it's just a great podcast. Like it's worth, it's worth listening to. It's interesting. Scott, you did a great job on a very, very technical topic. But the reason it's my object lesson is because like every once in a while, I come across a Lawfare product and it reminds me why Lawfare exists. And like this podcast is to me just like such a good example of like, this is why lawfare exists, right? Like you, you take a technical issue that is important, but is fundamentally misunderstood and people are going to make hay out of it. And you actually like, you know, do the freaking work. And I just, it made me very proud to be part of the clubhouse. So a uh, good job, Scott. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's a really good episode. I mean, it's not as fun as an appendix in formaldehyde, but you know, it's still, it's, it's good. <laughs> And remember, you can support Lawfare at com slash lawfare.
0: Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: First off, I just want to say that was really heartwarming. Uh, my object lesson is not as heartwarming, but it is funny. And uh, it is an interview done by the fearsome Isaac Schotner at The New Yorker. Um, of whom it has been said, if he calls, do not pick up the phone. He will destroy you. I think that is somewhat overstated. He is a very nice man. I have spoken to him. I still have my job. I don't think
3: that- I did an interview with yeah. Isaac Totner and it was lovely. Yes. I, I, I think the, the, the it should be amended to if he calls, examine your soul before <laughs> right, you take right. call. Right.
2: Examine Your Preconceptions. Uh, So uh, this is an interview that is really the peak of the Isaac Chodner interview's clueless guest genre. It is an interview with Alan Dershowitz about his complaints that he has been canceled by his fellow (laughs) residents of Martha's Vineyard who don't want to have him over to dinner. They don't want him to speak at their library, and it's outrageous. And uh, it is just a masterpiece of an interview. Like it, I mean, it's it's hilarious because Dershowitz does not seem to realize that Chodner is giving him plenty of room to hang himself. But just like the dry humor, the pacing, it's just truly a classic of the genre. Highly, highly recommended.
1: Clueless narcissism is hard. Like it's just, you know, it's it's like it's a hard condition.
3: It's just a hard condition to to work with.
1: But makes for wonderful interviews at <laughs> best.
3: And also, the I, I think that one of the beautiful features of the uh, Isaac Chotner interview is the patience. Quinta says the the pacing, but he's never in a rush. You know, there's he never cuts you off with the follow up question. I, it's this leisurely. Uh, I have all the time in the world while you hang yourself. <laughs>
1: There's just an amazing moment in the interview where you get to the library part. And I, I think if you, you you can see right in the transcript, Chatner's like, oh wow, the library. It's <laughs> like, yeah, the library. And he just completely misses all of the subtext that's going on. It's amazing. Oh, amazing.
0: Well, for my object lesson, I have what it will should be a nice accompaniment, I think, to a reading uh, of a long article like that interview, which is that as listeners have picked up, I've been traveling a lot for the last really month or two. Some for fun, some for not fun, and layered in with a lot of random illnesses and a lot of random family events and uh, sad and otherwise, uh, and a lot of random, random challenges dealing with a one-year-old uh, pulling him across country, which I've never dealt with before. So it's been a very exhausting and stressful couple of weeks. So last night, I finally, having taken an t- unanticipated red eye back from the West Coast uh, overnight, Got to sit down in my house with the firm knowledge I was not going to have to leave it, uh, or at least leave the DC metropolitan area for several weeks for the first time all summer. I'm very excited about that. I decided to treat myself to a cocktail. I did a little experimenting and hit on something that I want to share with everyone, uh, which is that I made a Boulevardier. That is a a Negroni variant that uses whiskey, if traditionally rye uh, instead of a gin. Uh, I had that, but I had had this bottle of brolio sitting around, which folks haven't had. It is like a very bitter, bracingly bitter with a little hinge of sweet. Alpine Amaro. And I was like, maybe I'll use this instead of Campari. And mixed around and came up with an absolutely delightful cocktail. I then Googled it and discovered that it is in fact, an existing cocktail that I had just never heard of before, that some restaurant in Seattle came up with 15 years ago. But it's really, really phenomenal, uh, which is essentially just one part rye whiskey, bonded rye whiskey. Uh, I did Rittenhouse Rye, one part sweet vermouth. I highly recommend vermouth, uh, what is it, the Torino, the, the brand, which is excellent. Uh, and a little on the sweet side, which you want on this one. And then some of the Brolio Amaro. But what I did was a little different twist on this is that Brolio, as folks may have remembered from an episode a couple months ago, uh, has this amazing characteristic where if you shake it with like a little pinch of salt, it kind of foams up and gets this totally different character that's much more nutty and sweet. That's kind of amazing. So I shook my Brolio for my second cocktail and then slowly mixed it in with the other stirred ingredients to give it like a little foamy effect. And it's really, really phenomenal. It's only after I did this that I Googled the cocktail which again was not original, as original as thought as that was discovered. That it had the perfect name for our era, which is the palpable apathy. <laughs> um, so <laughs> tonight, I strongly encourage you to, to try an palpable apathy. That's actually my and then maybe shake yourself out of. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Hello, Spokane. We are (laughs) palpable apathy. And then you
0: should shake yourself out of your palpable apathy by shaking up your Berlio before you show it in there, because it is really phenomenal and gives a nice little twist to what is already a phenomenal cocktail. It is like in my top three Negroni variants, which is saying a lot because I drink a lot of Negroni variants.
1: So uh, strongly recommend. Fancy Boy Anderson strikes again. Amazing, dude. Wow. I've been
0: out of of the game for a while, but I'm back in, baby. I'm excited.
3: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Drinking heavily up there. All right. Um, I got the document and Scott's texts about uh, what we were doing. And I saw we were doing an episode about High Mars, a segment about High Mars. And I just want to tell you guys a little story. Um, uh, The other day, a friend of mine, a Ukrainian friend of mine, sent me uh, a 3D printing uh, STL file for a little uh, pen holder in the shape of a, uh, it's actually technically, I know Twitter, it is not a HIMARS. It's an HLS system, uh, an MLS system, but it's, um, it looks like a frickin' HIMARS from, from the perspective of non-military uh, uh, weapon systems analysts. She was very excited about this and asked me to 3D print it. I printed it in awesome blue and yellow uh, uh, filament. So it's blue if you look at it from one side. It's yellow if you look at it from the other side. Its name, of course, is Baby High Mars. And uh, you can see a picture of it on Twitter, uh, which we will include in the show notes. Uh, So my object lesson today is Baby High Mars. Uh, store your pens in a fashion uh, that supports the Ukrainian uh, continued sovereignty and independence and liberation of Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. And don't forget the south. You know, uh, there's all these people in the south who really don't want to be on under uh, Russian domination. So, baby, Hi is there? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not printing one for you. But yeah, you can see it on Twitter.
0: Well, on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit Lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast, and our weekly series of long-form interviews on national security and cultural issues intersecting with national security chatter. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quentin Allen and our special guest Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.